the reality is you've got the same person using multiple platforms. Now you can either then look at that and say, I can show the same ad to the same person multiple times across different platforms. Or you can say to yourself, I now have the opportunity to reach the same person with different things in different contexts at different moments of their lives on different platforms. Ideally you go with the second one, but admittedly that's a lot more work. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung and the digital landscape is now undergoing a significant change. With me today to help to decipher how this digital landscape from social media to cryptocurrency is shifting globally and specifically in the Asia Pacific is my good friend Simon Kemp, no stranger to the show. Welcome Simon and it's great to have you back since our last chat. Thanks, Bernard, and thanks for having me back as well. We last spoke, I think, during the live show, and then after that, I disappeared and worked in Amazon Web Services, and then now I'm back, and I wanted to know, since our last conversation, I think it was 2019, what have yeah. you been up to? <laughs> More of the same, disturbingly. Since I last saw you, my life has been very similar. So you've gone through changes, and I am producing the reports every quarter since then. So COVID, we got stuck inside the house but did exactly the same thing so it's just been numbers and numbers of business I saw you and you're actually just produced I think the digital 2022 report I think it's the July global stat short report right yeah I think maybe to just give some context given that now we're in the middle of the year 2022 everything starts opening up and post-covid what is the global state of digital adoption globally and also in the Asia Pacific so the July report is our quarterly update. So this is the latest in the ongoing series of global digital reports. There's been a report series that's gone on for more than a decade now. So we track the changes every quarter. The numbers we published in the April report, so the report previous to this showed that there are now more than 5 billion people around the world using the internet. So that's a pretty hefty kind of milestone. Nice, nice big juicy numbers. But that is by no means the only juicy number in these reports. So in the July update, we're also seeing all sorts of healthy growth across individual social platforms, time spent using digital services, uh, changes in cryptocurrency, all sorts of stuff. So I know we're going to dig into lots of those things in more detail. So I won't give away all of the secrets yet, but plenty of change and still plenty of growth. I think that's the important thing is I think a lot of people sort of saw after COVID things start to slow down. That's certainly the case. We're not seeing things grow quite as fast as they did at the peak of COVID, but we're still seeing plenty of growth and change. How about in the Asia-Pacific region? I think, is it still growing? Because I think of all the yeah. regions, Asia-Pacific is still the accelerator across the world, right? Yeah, we're still seeing lots of really interesting growth and obviously things vary a little bit by country. So places like Japan and Australia, you're not seeing the same level of growth as you would see in somewhere like Cambodia or Vietnam. So obviously Asia-Pacific is an incredibly broad region with a lot of variety in it. But having said that, I think when you look at the trends across the region, there is still plenty of growth in adoption. But most interestingly, there is a sort of trend towards adopting new technologies a lot faster across a lot of developing Asia than you might see in even Western countries. So like the United States and Europe are actually slightly slower often to adopt some of the new trends that were coming through. So that's quite an interesting one. I think when you start looking especially at things like changes in search behaviours, you start to see a lot more change across APAC than you would see in, say, Europe. So definitely some interesting things happening across Asia. So are we actually reaching the inflection point of digital growth? I know I asked this question many years back and I'm still <laughs> asking, right? Because it's always accelerating upwards. But yeah. they, they, they comes to a point where there will be enough people with mobile devices, there will be enough people with social media accounts. 
are we seeing the inflection point or is still too early? No. So the data does suggest that we're getting there, I think, if we've not already just reached the inflection point. So the inflection point is where growth does start to slow down. It's difficult to say with 100% conviction because what might seem like a slowdown in numbers may still be caused by delays in research and reporting due to COVID. So we can't say absolutely surely whether things are slowing down, but all of the numbers do suggest in what I'm seeing that it's not the same speed of growth that we saw a couple of years ago. But I'm going to I'm going to give you some caveats to that is totally expected. So our analysis of especially Internet adoption shows that roughly two in three people on Earth should be using the Internet by the end of next year. And it would be very surprising if we hadn't passed the inflection point by you know, by the time we reach two thirds adoption, simply because once you get to a certain point in growth trajectories, it gets harder and harder to add all the people who are not yet online because of things like infrastructure challenges, the cost of devices, especially amongst the world's poorer populations. So yes, I think we are either at or already past the inflection point, but I think that was to be expected. So that's not a nasty surprise. Mm. The fun part of actually going through your report is always trying to find the new nuggets that I want to discuss with you. So I think <laughs> this part of the conversation, one one interesting thing I like about the report, and to be fair to you, every year, Analyze Asia, Twitter, LinkedIn, we'll be posting your stats page by page good, for good. my audience. So I thought the understanding of how users access news was getting pretty interesting to me. Mm. I want to first, I think maybe just sort of to help the audience. Can you yeah. give me some brief overview of the media channels where we think about use for news, because I think the way you've broken down the channels is slightly different from how traditional research analysts have actually break it down. Yeah. We've got a special section in the July update report, which is all about digital news habits. And that is largely informed by a new report that came out published by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. So every year they publish their digital news report. It says fantastic resource, incredibly detailed piece of research, goes across a a large number of countries around the world, gives really rich insights into where people are finding their news, how they're consuming it, whether they trust it, all that kind of stuff. It's critical to state upfront, though, that the survey that they conduct does not include mainland China. So it misses a very big gap. This year also, it didn't include Russia. I can't remember whether it did in previous years. I don't think it did, but just worth noting as we go into the analysis, especially when it comes to things like trust, that it doesn't include two of the world's biggest populations. Mm. And what are the social platforms that when we think about accessing digital news, I mean, is there a regional bias? I think we, since we're going to exclude China, but in China, people use WeChat and Toutiao to access news. And then you think about, say, Japan would be something like smart news. And then the rest of the world could be using Apple News, could be using the New York Times app or Financial Times app. So where are the entry points for people? Because like in some countries like Indonesia and Philippines, as you always tell me, they are just using Facebook is the internet for them. It's really interesting. This varies again a lot by country. Overall, the study this year found that four in five adults turn to digital channels to get their news compared to three and five that turn to TV. So that was already a relatively important finding. The bit, I suppose, that really stands out for me within that, because obviously digital channels are very broad. So that includes apps, it includes websites, it includes social platforms. It was the social media data that really struck me. 
57% of adults say that they use social media as a source of news. And that's two and a half times larger than the number who turn to physical print media. So physical newspapers and magazines, it's only 23% compared to that 57% that are using social media. Now within social media, there's a broad number of different channels and Facebook is still top. So don't believe the media hype. Don't believe those stories that Facebook is dead. We've got various data points to prove that, but it's very clear in the behavioral activity that we see in studies like this, that not only is Facebook's audience still alive and well, but the, they're still doing a lot of different stuff on platforms like Facebook as well. So Facebook as a source of news is really interesting. I think when you consider what that means for the average person on the street and how they consume news, once upon a time, we would get our news either you know in, in a newspaper where it was next to all sorts of other news stories, or we would get it in a news bulletin where it was again, packaged up with other news stories. Now, what a lot of people are seeing is they get a news story that is sort of bumpered, if you like, on either side by other kinds of content, whether it's photos of somebody's lunch, whether it's pictures from a party or a wedding, you know, it, it's, you know, it's in people's social media feeds and therefore it's almost not quite random, but there is no way of knowing in advance what's going to be either side of that new story. And that contextual positioning does dramatically change how people perceive the news that they're reading and whether they trust it and the implications that it has for them. So even something as simple as consuming news in social media dramatically changes the impact that those news stories have on us as individuals and therefore as society too. I think a lot of the news in social media is actually dramatized by a lot of its own recommendation algorithms or yeah. machine learning that actually helps to amplify or de-amplify the coverage as such. So you see derivatives of that or you could see people moving it up by constantly liking it. I think the way I want to first frame the question is how do you measure trust in news or does the social media channels actually act as amplifier or de-amplifiers to the trust in news on that? Yeah, so this is a really important question. And to be fair, it's multifaceted. So I think trying to break it down into simple answers today is not going to be the easiest task. But so the way that we report trust in the report this quarter, so you'll see there is a couple of charts in there that actually say trust in news. That was a question that was asked directly to the survey respondents. So do you trust news most of the time? And then do you trust news by each of the following individual channels. Weirdly, this year, they didn't break it down by social media, which is a bit frustrating. I think that in the full survey, once I get hold of the full set of data from the Reuters Institute later this year, because they will publish the full data set for nerds like me to play with later. But so far, we've only got the headline stats. But it was a very straightforward question of how do you trust news most of the time? Yes or no kind of question. But nonetheless, I think you know the results coming through of that are already very enlightening. The fact that people say that they trust news less now than they used to is the key takeaway from that data. It will vary by platform. So whether I trust it on the New York Times app versus whether I trust it on my local television station versus whether I trust seeing it in TikTok or Snapchat, there's going to be a very different relationship with the content that I get on those platforms. And that isn't just unique to news. And I think this is really important is the degree to which we trust content on these platforms is a sort of consequence, if you like, of every piece of content that gets posted in there. So there's a, if there's an awful lot of untrustworthy content that sits either side of a story, even if that story is from a, a trustworthy news source, it's going to be impacted by the channel that it gets delivered in. So news brands need to be very cognizant of that, especially because a lot of the sharing of news stories happens 
through the individual. So it's not just the platforms publishing to these feeds that we're looking at. It's people like you and me taking that new story, publishing it to our feeds because we want to discuss it with our friends or because we think it's scandalous or whatever else it may be. So, you know, there's so much to unpack here, about it. I'm not quite sure where we should take it, but I'm guessing you've got some more questions. I think the way I would think about this, what can we learn from the use of social media as a source of news? I think maybe the way I'm going to frame this question a little bit, instead of trying to say, is it the right or wrong? It's more, what is the mental model when you look at a piece of news coming through a social media channel. And I think that's probably the more important point rather than we trying to dictate, oh, is this yes, is this no, is this misinformation, or is this not misinformation? And again, there's a lot of different things to unpack here. So is it the news brand itself that's publishing it? So is this the BBC publishing a story to its own Facebook page so that its followers can see that story? Or is it a person on the street like you or me publishing a story? That in itself is going to affect a little bit of the reasons why the story was shared. And then that will inevitably then shape the future conversations and how people then perceive it once they see it as the audience for that. So each individual post shared by different people or different organizations is going to have a different impact. And that in itself is already an important takeaway. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to separate the various different things that we need to look at. So the source of news, the delivery channel, which is increasingly different. So the BBC publishing through Facebook, but me then sharing that as a reader, there we have three different sources. And how much do I trust the BBC? How much do I trust Facebook? How much do I trust Simon? Oof. There's all sorts of mess in there. So when you're an organization that is looking at this, if you're a news brand, you've got all sorts of things to unpack. And to be honest, I think that would take longer than we have today to discuss. But as a marketer, you need to be cognizant of these things as well. So even if you are just publishing advertising to these platforms, you need to look at how the audiences that you want to reach are perceiving the trustworthiness and the reliability of content that gets shared within these channels. Just going back to another bit of your question though, Bernard, you know, why is news such a big part of the feeds that we have across various different social platforms? I think one of the reasons for that is that news is just inherently conversation worthy, which if you think about how social networks work, it should be something that gets shared regularly in there. It's not like in the early days, back in the, the late 2000s and start of 2010s, it's not like people suddenly thought, I'm going to turn my social media feed into a news feed. It's just that there are so many news stories that are worthy of talking to friends and family about, whether for good or for bad reasons. So isn't this a cute puppy? You know, that was the rise of the BuzzFeed model, which for a number of years back at, you know, a decade ago, that was social media news. They cracked the algorithm for a while and Facebook broke it for them by changing the rules. But if you think about it, a lot of the reason why news has become such a dominant feature in our social feeds is because people like you and I want to share stories. And not all of those are going to be like, you know, big headline stories. It could be local news stories. It could be heartwarming. It could be incredibly sad stories about people we know, all sorts of different reasons why we share them. But news in itself has always been a topic of conversation. And that's one of the reasons why it fits so well within the social media world. I think this is probably, I want to project it out a little bit, looking at news just as one facet of what social media apps are. I mean, if you were to think of it, you covered this almost a decade already, right? What are the key users of social apps today in 2022? How are they different from the past decade? 
yeah, your social feed has become your life feed. I think this is the really important thing is it's no longer photos of my lunch as it might have been 10 years ago. It was There were certain kinds of behaviors which dominated the early days, which became almost a cliche. But when you look at the latest research from companies like GWI, so one of our prime report partners, they do this huge survey of, I believe they, they certainly speak to hundreds of thousands, if not close to a million people every year as part of their surveys across 48 different countries, age 16 to 64. So a really broad survey of internet behaviors and also preferences and attitudes. When GWI asks their audience, why do you use social media? There are many, many different reasons coming through. And they're only asking which of these is the prime reasons why you use social media. Staying in touch with friends and family is still the main reason. No surprises there. But news is coming through incredibly strongly, staying up to date with trends, which you could see as sort of current affairs, but broadly. But increasingly, we're seeing things like people going there to find information about brands that they're considering buying. They're going there to obviously stay in touch with personalities, celebrities, influencers, you name it. They're going there to find inspiration. Yeah, it's so much stuff. So our social media experience, especially now that we're using so many different platforms, it touches most aspects of our lives. There's obviously certain things that we don't publish to social media still, but you know, especially with platforms like LinkedIn, you can see how you know there's a, a very big chunk of the work life of a large number of people has moved into the social media world too. So it's not quite to this extent where if you look at the world of mobile apps, there is literally nothing in our lives that is not got its own dedicated mobile app. I cannot find, when I say literally, I'm not using that in the millennial sense of literally. I mean, I cannot find any part of my life where there isn't an app that's already been created for it. And I find that fascinating. Social media is not quite there yet, but it's getting there. I agree with you on that. I think LinkedIn has become the work-life social media feed, but the rest yeah. are still like searching for where they land as such. But the usual question still comes back to, is Facebook declining or is it just a myth? <laughs> based on what I read on your July stem shop. Yeah, Bernard, I think we've covered this question a number of times the over times, the years. And yeah. it's greatly ironic that it still get asked. So for context, because I love this story, is Facebook dying? The very first, well, not even the very first. I did not do proper due diligence to look for the very first headline that involved this. But I found a New York Times headline from 2009 that said there was a Facebook exodus. This is back when Facebook had about, I don't know, 300 million users. So it's got 2.6 billion more users since that purported exodus, which was nonsense. Journalists love to bash Facebook and they love to tell us that Facebook is dying because they know people will still open the story. It's a brilliant piece of clickbait. But unfortunately, folks, spoiler alert, all the data tells us that people are not leaving Facebook. Let me caveat that slightly. So just after we published the July report, so we published this on the 21st of July, and then just a couple of days ago, so we're recording this, what, 1st of August? And just a couple of days ago, Facebook did its latest earnings announcement and did reveal that its monthly active user total had declined by 2 million users. However, really important to give context to that, that was largely driven by the events in Russia and Ukraine due to the ongoing conflict there. In all honesty, it grew everywhere else except in Eastern Europe. So I would not read those numbers as being a Facebook decline. That is the consequence of international sanctions and various other challenges. So realistically, there is no data that I can find that points to a sustained decrease in Facebook's audience. And that includes amongst teenage audiences. We've seen more than a million teenagers come onto Facebook this year 
significantly more than a million, in fact, between the ages of 13 and 19. So net growth, not net decline in teenage users. So I would suggest next time you see the clickbait that says Facebook is dying, do a quick Google search, see if Mark Zuckerberg has said, yes, Facebook is dying. If it's not, ignore it. Because quite honestly, until Mark Zuckerberg says it's dead, I don't think that it's dead. <laughs> I thought why I thought it's interesting to revisit this question every time we have this conversation is thinking about no matter how difficult a platform has maintained so much control, it actually takes a very long time for them to die. Yeah, and I think does. that the, the myth of just moving users, I, I say this as a person who have not used Facebook for maybe once a year, and I go back, I still see tons and tons of content from friends that I know posting it. So I know that's yeah. definitely not declined. No, it's there. quite surprising, isn't it? I'm the same. I go back into Facebook occasionally to do work stuff because I'm not a big, ironically, I'm not a big social media user at all. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I used to run a social media agency. Now I use it a little bit less, but that's largely because my life is collecting numbers. It is really interesting like what you were saying, because social media, in order for social media platforms to gain the visibility that makes them newsworthy, they have to have already established a place in our lives that has become a habit. So for them to gain a decent number of users and therefore to become headline worthy, that's happened over time because you know you can't just use it for a week and then stop and expect somehow a billion people to be using it. So let's take the latest darling of the media world of TikTok. It's taken what four to six years, depending on how you want to look at it, for the platform to reach the billion plus users that it has now. But people are spending an hour and a half a day on average using TikTok, according to the latest numbers from Sensor Tower, which is just insane. I mean, an hour and a half every day on average. It's going to take a long time for that behavior to die. It's not like you wake up one morning as an entire global community and everybody says, no, we're not using it. Unless, of course, your government blocks it. So we have seen that in places like India, where overnight the platform is no longer available. But unless there is something sort of cataclysmic like that, realistically, it's going to take a long time for you to get out of that habit. So you'll start losing, using it less in terms of time each day. Then you use it less frequently. And slowly but surely, it may take a less important role in your life. But one of the key things coming through in the research is that most of the platforms that we used a long time ago, we still use. So seven and a half platforms per person per month on average around the world. So, you know, Facebook may not be as exciting and sexy as it was 10, 15 years ago, but there's still 3 billion people almost every month using it. And they're spending a lot of time using it every day as well. So let's not lie to ourselves. It, being less sexy than it was this time last year does not deliver the same headline as Facebook is dead. They're just completely different things. A wise man once told me Instagram is a place where you tell lies to your friends and Twitter is a place where you tell the truth to strangers. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh, Here, so since you mentioned TikTok and I think this is pretty interesting now, how is advertising growing on TikTok? I think one thing is pretty interesting to me is thinking along more from the point of view because I actually don't use TikTok. I saw how addictive it could be just by clicking yeah. on dog videos. So I'm just quite curious, like where I, where we are living in Asia Pacific, what is the battle between Facebook and TikTok shaping up the way? So that, that idea that it is a battle is a little bit misplaced in itself. I think from what I can see, the vast majority of users of both platforms use both platforms, if that makes sense. So this idea that it's Facebook versus TikTok 
it matters to advertisers with limited budgets who have to decide whether they should put their, I mean, if they've only got $1, then should they be here or there? But realistically, for most advertisers that I speak to, so the kinds of clients that Kepios works with, I would suggest to all of them, try out the different platforms before you make this false opposition. Find which one works best for you and then over-invest in that one platform, yes. But this idea that it's Facebook versus TikTok, I think is a little bit misleading. Now, sure enough, there's only so many hours in the day and therefore TikTok may steal some of the time that people were spending on Facebook. But when you think about the reasons why people use TikTok, and this is one of the most interesting things, again, from GWI data. So it says, why do you use the following platforms? People go to TikTok to find funny and entertaining videos, whereas people go to Facebook to stay in touch with friends and family. So from that, should you be comparing TikTok with Facebook or should you be comparing it with TV and Netflix? I think it's much more important when we start thinking about if we are going to have to look at where the time is coming from, the time comes from similar content, not from platforms that for whatever arbitrary reason are being given a similar label. Because to my mind, TikTok is actually not as social as other platforms, mostly watching and then reacting, but it's not where I go to have a chat with somebody. There are two lines of questioning can go from here. One is that you keep hearing the media narrative from Facebook. It's like, oh man, we're going to matter. It's going to relentlessly copy TikTok with Instagram, you know, yeah. Reels. I mean, they can they have done that to their UI, okay? But really do not know where do, where are they going to go with it. They are, I think, maybe aggravate some of their traditional users. Even the Kardashians are now making a revolt. I, I think that that is, does that narrative play out? Or because... For me, actually, to me, TikTok's natural competitor should be YouTube and yeah, not Facebook correct. or Instagram. So this is an incredibly cynical answer. Yeah, I'm jaded. I've been looking at this data for 10 years. That whole thing of we're going to change our... So Facebook, Meta coming out and saying we're going to change our algorithm and the Kardashians having a bit tantrum about it. The whole thing was beautifully orchestrated. Now, if you think about the timing of it, that announcement that they were going to change their algorithm came out a week before their earnings announcement. Three days before the earnings announcement, the Kardashians have a tantrum, which is perfect. It's like, you know, Zuckerberg goes onto the call with the meta investors and says, as you've seen, we've announced that we're changing the algorithm. So we're going to be addressing TikTok and all the investors go good. And he says, oh, but, you know, core users like the Kardashians are slightly nervous and we need to heed our user base and make sure we don't alienate. Oh, absolutely, say the investors. So the investors are basically saying, we've got no idea what's actually going on. To be honest, you do just whatever you like. So Facebook gets through the earnings call, realizes that it's got away with it. And the next day then says, good, we're not actually making the changes after all. I, I, <laughs> like I said, this is an incredibly cynical answer. And this is my perspective only as an outsider. I have no inside information as to what's going on here. But I suspect they never had any plans to change anything whatsoever. I think this was all just for the benefit of getting through an investor earnings call such that if anything went horribly wrong, they could say, but we've already made this announcement. So I do not anticipate there being significant changes to Instagram to the extent that it's going to look exactly like TikTok. Nobody wants that. That's not of benefit to anybody. The reality is, yes, there's going to be increasing numbers of players coming in and fighting for a limited number of ad dollars. But if it is a case that TikTok and Instagram become identical, unfortunately, I think even Mark Zuckerberg would acknowledge that the new kid on the block is more likely to win that party because the algorithm in TikTok is better. It's got it's had years to perfect its recommendations that aren't social graph based, they're content based. So, yeah, I mean, to be fair, I don't see the advantage to anybody of copying. I think the very fact that 
the average user uses seven and a half platforms per month is testament to the fact that different platforms serve different needs in our lives and there's space for all of them. Some of them not as much as others, but that, you know, even if you're Snapchat and you're not, you know, you're not top of the pile, but you're certainly making a decent amount of money out of ads. And yes, advertising, sorry, investors get upset and you lose 40% of your stock price in one day because you didn't grow as fast as you could have done. But uh, yeah, I, to be honest, I think investors are just... Investors are a really bad gauge of the potential of a platform from a user and an advertiser perspective. And unfortunately, it's those investors that are the ones that drive the greatest number of headlines around these platforms. So if you're a marketer, be very careful when you're reading news headlines about platforms, because there's a good chance that those headlines are driven by investors and not by marketing activity. Can I take the other strand and then pull it in the other way? Of course. Let's tackle these numbers. Break them all down, Bernard. How do you think about YouTube? Because I find that YouTube is con- is becoming like an unseen giant sitting somewhere and it's growing and it's actually taking some of the features from TikTok. So this is a really interesting one. YouTube being the sleeping giant, I think this is just because the media never bothered to get out of bed and tell the story. And it, it took the numbers that were posted on YouTube's press homepage as that's the number. It's the weirdest thing. Like if you look at what's published on YouTube's press page, where it gives you stats for journalists, it says 2 billion users. That number is incredibly low compared to what every bit of my analysis tells us. So we already know that two and a half billion people see ads on YouTube every month. So that's significantly higher than the number that they're reporting. And I suspect even that two and a half billion is incredibly low compared to the reality. I don't have perfect numbers to back this up. But if you ask me to gamble, if I could go in and look at the numbers that both Meta and Google have behind the scenes, I'm pretty confident that YouTube's numbers will be higher than Facebook's because you can use YouTube when not signed in and you can't really use Facebook when you're not signed in. So YouTube is massive. Why the numbers appear so low confuses me. I think, you know, Google is always relatively conservative when it reports things, which is one of the reasons why I suspect the numbers are not getting touted in the same way that Meta might tout numbers for, say, Instagram. Because it takes a more unique number identifiers. The fact that you mentioned that if the person can look at the video over and over again and you see like all these new Marvel trailers always getting like, they're always breaking records each time, how many seconds, if you just... Think about the just by placing an ad, you literally capture your advertising dollars much quicker. And I think you know YouTube is one of those environments where people go there knowing what they're going to get. I mean, it's like when in your Facebook newsfeed, you could have a variety of different things in terms of different content formats, and the experience is slightly different. But you know, the average YouTube regular, if you like, so somebody who's used YouTube at least a few times they know they're going to get videos. (laughs) It's kind of like, it's the format. Now, obviously you're going to get new content every day and you're going to get some great stuff depending on who you follow and what the algorithm recommends for you. But you're right. It's much more like I sit down in front of this screen and I think, no, you've got the horizontal screen for YouTube and you've got the vertical screen for TikTok. But other than that, you you know you're going to sit there and watch some videos. Now, it might be that somebody has gone there... (laughs) One of the use cases we were looking at over the weekend and trying to break this down a little bit more detail, but you go to YouTube because you've broken something in your sink. So your plumbing in your house has gone wrong. You need a how-to video and YouTube is a great place to go and look for that. But you also go there for some sit-back content. You know, so I regularly watch YouTube once I get into bed at night and want to see what the latest... I follow some nerdy influencers and I want to see what stories they're telling me. 
and that's my daily entertainment. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Comparing TikTok and YouTube definitely makes sense. And it's probably more sensible from a marketing context perspective to compare those two rather than comparing TikTok to say Twitter, which is completely different. When it comes back to this whole social media landscape, right? Now we have about nine platforms, pick and choose. Are we reaching that point where actually different social media channels are meant for different types of advertising methods? Because like, I think I can think of Twitter being very different. I can think of Instagram yeah. being very different. And I can think of Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, they're all different. This is one of those really interesting things is you could very easily do completely different activities across those different platforms. So yes, the opportunity is certainly there. Now it comes down a little bit more to resource and objectives and stuff like that. So do advertisers take full advantage of that? Not yet. I don't really see any advertiser really taking advantage of the various different platforms and using them differently. But to be fair, that's a big ask of anybody. One of the most interesting things in the latest rounds of data is the overlaps in the audiences of all of those top platforms. So like I said, on average, seven and a half platforms per user per month. So there's a very good chance that the audiences of those different platforms are going to have to be overlapping. Otherwise, there's the numbers simply don't add up. There's too many users. When you look at the actual overlaps, though, it's really quite staggering. I cannot quite get my head around how large the overlaps are. So outside of mainland China, it's not fair to include mainland China because they don't have access to the same set of platforms. So let's exclude them. But across the rest of the world, users between the ages of 16 and 64, they're the largest unique audience is on WhatsApp. But that unique audience is only one and a half percent of users in that age group. 98.5% of WhatsApp's users use at least one other platform. And to be honest, most of them use a whole suite of different ones. And then, so that's WhatsApp, that's the largest unique audience. Everything after that, the unique audience gets smaller and smaller. When you look at a platform like TikTok, less than 0.1%, so less than one in a thousand of its users between the ages of 16 and 64 do not use any other platform. The reality is you've got the same person using multiple platforms. Now, you can either then look at that and say, I can show the same ad to the same person multiple times across different platforms. Or you can say to yourself, I now have the opportunity to reach the same person with different things in different contexts at different moments of their lives on different platforms. Ideally, you go with the second one, but admittedly, that's a lot more work. But do you think that social media is not going all into the messaging apps? I think you mentioned WhatsApp, right? What happens to Telegram, Discord? I mean, these are heavy channels. Like, I'm in the Web3 enjoy investing space. You cannot get away without going through Telegram and Discord, even if you know how disorganized things can be. And I'm having difficulty catching up with those two channels. Yeah. Herein lies the magic. So Telegram is growing even faster than TikTok at the moment in terms of the figures that have just been published. So that in itself is incredible. Discord, certainly not as big as any of those platforms yet, but 150 million monthly actives is certainly not a small platform. But let's break that down, Bernard, because I think this in itself is fascinating. You've got WhatsApp, you've got Telegram, and you've got Discord. The technical aspects of those platforms are very different. The kinds of audiences that those platforms attract are different. The reasons why those people go to those platforms and what they use them for are different. And I think you'll probably find that the average Telegram user also uses WhatsApp. Discord, slightly less so perhaps because it is still skewing towards that younger male audience and it's for, largely still for gaming, but don't get me wrong, it's a lot more than gaming conversations as well. But I think this idea that 
our messenger is going to eat the lunch of a Twitter or whatever else? The answer is no. There are different things for different people at different times, and you would use them in partnership. Now, it may mean that you end up spending less time on one compared to what you used to use it for. But Discord, if you're not familiar with Discord, go and check it out because it's just fascinating. Confess, I'm like you, Bernard. I kind of look at it and I'm like, I still can't quite get my head into where this fits in my life because it's not a natural fit for the passions that I have and the age that I am because I'm an old dude. But I did dip in there for a while. I I pretended for a moment that I was going to go back to my DJing days and I went into some of the music channels within Discord, the communities, if you like. It was just fascinating that the depth of conversation, the sharing of emotions and excitement and all this kind of stuff. So finding where the best opportunities for your brand, for your particular kinds of activities are, is incredibly difficult because there are all these different options. I think, you know, you, you mentioned earlier this idea of nine social platforms. In all honesty, a decent marketer with a fairly decent sized brand is going to be looking at upwards of 20 different social platforms if they're doing proper due diligence. Now, admittedly, you'll knock out half of those on day one. No problem. You say, yes, it's interesting, but not for me. Amongst the ones that you've got left, it's increasingly difficult to prioritize because there are so many different options and creative opportunities and contextual considerations and all that kind of stuff. So it's not easy. Don't fool yourself. This is not a quick choice. Why I'm bringing up this quote is that you cannot miss this quote if you have to buy a non-fungible token. Totally. From yeah. whether it is Web3, CryptoPunks, Bored Apes, or even now Tiffany and CryptoPunks jewelry or, you know, so to be, you know, all this whole landscape and you cannot get away with it, which is where I'm coming to, which is to the next point, because I noticed that the report has now started to cover cryptocurrency as yeah. part digital, acceptable. Correct. What are the key indicators are you looking for in covering this new space then? So th- this is fascinating because I think, you know, to your point, you've got brands now coming in and playing in this space as well. And I, I look at an awful lot of this stuff and think, really? So there was a, a large... Let me not be quite disparaging by definition here, but it was a large global alcohol brand telling me that I should go and have a look at their new presence in the sandbox this morning. I was like, a string of profanities came out my mouth, which I shall spare your users from. But I was just like, why are you wasting your time and money doing something that nobody cares about? By all means, if this is an educational thing for your your marketers, then I get it. But nobody in your target audience because the, uh, the brand that we're talking about here, this is not the right place for them to be. It's just like, this is nonsense. I understand this may have been a PR play and whatever else, but it's just a waste of budget compared to what you could have done with it. Let me step back and I'll talk about the reasons why we are including those things now. So cryptocurrencies, the adoption, so the number of people who own a form of cryptocurrency, so not just Bitcoin, lots of other things as well, but the number of people who own around the world between the ages of 16 and 64 now has grown by 50% over the past year. So almost one in eight internet users between the ages of 16 and 64 say that they now own some form of cryptocurrency. But like I said, that's grown by 50% over the past year. The really interesting stuff in that data is where the adoption rates are highest. So Turkey currently has the highest, and that's for all sorts of reasons to do with their fiat currency. So the Turkish lira has taken a proper nasty beating over the past couple of years. I mean, it's been devalued. They've got runaway inflation. If you're in Turkey, and you're holding Turkish lira, you need to hedge. So, you know, Bitcoin is relatively easily accessible compared to other currencies because you can do it from your phone rather than have to go buy notes and stuff. I think just the overall growth in cryptocurrencies is fascinating. Also across Southeast Asia. So I think, you know, especially because your podcast audience wants to be slightly more interested in what's going on in Asia. Very high rates of cryptocurrency adoption across 
Thailand and the Philippines, and that's largely due to games. So especially Axie Infinity, it has an in-game currency that still qualifies because it's a real currency. You can do things with it beyond the game. But that's one of the reasons why crypto ownership is so high across Southeast Asia is games like that. But it's not the only reason. So people are investing in Ether and Bitcoin and stuff as well. When you look at the rise in ownership of those currencies, but then you look at the action that sorry the activity that's been taking place in the nft market it's fascinating because you've got this massive rise in ownership of currencies but then this tumble in activity around nfts which i'm sure is going to be your next question so let me make sure that i understand what you want to know about that before i rattle on the awareness of non-fungible tokens is an interesting one to me how are people relating to nfts and how do they see it differently say from bitcoin ethereum you know yeah. and the interesting thing is i have the world bank report that dovetails exactly to what you're saying 60 percent of actual cryptocurrency users are actually from the rest of the world and not from the us yeah and i think a big significant portion is between latin southeast asia and i think like the turkey middle east minor regions as well so I think, where do we even start with this data, Bernard? It's fascinating because there's so many different things that we can take out. So I think roughly two thirds of the world's internet users now say that they've at least heard of the term NFT. When I say the world, sorry, let me caveat that. Across larger economies, so bigger markets out there, most people have now at least heard of an NFT, but only three in 10 say that they understand what an NFT actually is. And even amongst that three in 10, one in five of those three in 10 think that an NFT is a cryptocurrency, which if we're honest with ourselves, no, it's not. And they're, they're obviously in the same world, but an, by definition, an NFT cannot be a currency because it's non-fungible. So that's the reason why we can't call it a form of currency. I think when you look at where the adoption of these things is really taking off, it is very important to stress that this is not just a North America, Western Europe phenomenon. It's right the way around the world. It's taking place in all sorts of different places that you wouldn't expect amongst groups of people that you wouldn't necessarily always peg. So yes, it's younger men, especially that are the dominant activity here, but an awful lot of NFT activity relates to gaming and gaming is not as skewed to young men as you might think if you haven't looked at the latest data. So our research clearly shows that men and women are almost at par when it comes to playing video games. And sure enough, younger people are more likely to play video games, but two thirds of baby boomers play video games. So do not in any way assume that it's just the kids in their basements playing games. This is big. And because you've got that big gaming audience, you've therefore got a massive opportunity for NFTs within that. Now, again, it's going to be the younger users are more likely to be the ones buying NFTs for their games because they're more involved in X, Y, and Z. But nonetheless, I think the opportunity there is clear. It's the number of people who own them depends on which report you read. So this is where my, my I have numbers, but I confess I'm not convinced I trust any of them yet. It's a little bit too many people with agendas and wanting to tell me stories rather than it being a 100% factual. This is how many people own NFTs. This is interesting because if I looked at the NFT, I actually could see equal numbers of men and women within the WhatsApp Discord or whichever chat group you want that are actually going after it. But of course, they have different perceptions of value. And I think the question underlying why I thought it's interesting is, I don't know whether the question that you may want to go after is, what is the social value of NFTs in the digital space? And I think this is a pretty interesting question because I think standard cryptocurrencies, whether it's decentralized finance or you know, DeFi as we call it, or even typical spot tokens, I think they still belong in what I call the realm. It's 
still abstract and complex. Yeah. Only the people in the finance know. But I think NFT is something that's relatable, simple, and understandable to the layperson. It can be used as a movie ticket. People are using it. I've actually, I think if you've been to the MetaGem Asia, I have to have my NFT pass and I can walk into the exhibition. From that point of view, I think it just defies it. And by the way, even NFTs can be fractionalized. I mean, I've invested yeah. in companies doing the NFTs itself and the ones managing the NFTs as well. So I'm just trying to get a sense of what's the social signals that you are actually looking for, which I think is a much more interesting question. So let me just back up a little bit before I get to that. So when you were saying there's equal numbers of women and men, just a word of caution to your listeners. We do have evidence that there are a large number of people misrepresenting themselves in these communities. And one of the biggest tricks is to misrepresent their gender. Now, this is different to saying, you know, I have chosen my gender to present to the world. This is actively misrepresenting your gender because... So to give some context to this, the guys at nonfungible.com reported that of the total value of NFT transactions in the first quarter of this year, more than half of those transactions were wash trading. So this is the same person buying and selling it to themselves to artificially inflate the price. So I buy my own NFT using a different wallet so that I can make it look like the price of my NFT is going up. So be very wary. This is one of the reasons why I'm not publishing a lot of the data that I am seeing is because I don't trust it yet. I think there's an awful lot of misrepresentation and an awful lot of active lying. I can't think of any other better way of saying it. It's people trying to trick you. I like the fact that you're putting your skeptical hat and that's why you're always on the show because I want to hear the other side of the story, <laughs> whether the numbers are really real. So like I said, it's not that I think that the whole thing is nonsense. It's that I don't have enough numbers to be confident that I have an accurate picture to paint, if you like. So there is plenty of evidence that a lot of people are genuinely buying NFTs for their own personal benefit and that those NFTs have value. But it goes back to your, we'll, we'll get to the question you actually asked now, the social value. And to be honest, from what I can see, the vast majority of the value that people are paying to acquire an NFT is purely based on the social status that it affords them. So I know I'm going to get hate mail for this, but there is no real justification for buying a Bored Ape Yacht Club other than the ability to say, I own this Bored Ape. It, it, sure, it may have, it may allow you access into some weird online club or whatever else, but realistically, it's a status symbol. And to be honest, that is purely afforded by other people. So as in, you know, if you, Bernard, say that I really like BAYC, and therefore I'm like, oh, I want to show off. I'm going to go and buy a BAYC and show off to Bernard that I've got a board ape. How much is that worth to me? That is going to come down to a very personal perception. How much I pay for that ape versus how much you pay for it versus how much Elon Musk pays for it. It's going to be completely different based on our social setting and our, our lives. Don't think that the value that is being attributed to these things is universal. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's non-fungible is that it's totally perception-based rather than, you know, I can't directly swap this for that at equal value and expect everybody else to believe it's the same value as well. I think the true value of NFT is actually provenance. A lot of people don't realize that that is the real value of the NFTs, the perceived value of it rather than yeah. the actual value. But that's going to change quite dramatically over the next few years, though. So I'm seeing a lot of chatter about digital twins. So a physical world object that has its online equivalent. And that may be something like what we're seeing Artifact doing with Nike, where they're creating, you know, you buy a hoodie and it has an NFT element, which is, you know, you can see 
stuff coming to life in the metaverse or through an app or whatever else. That's interesting. But um, if I'm honest, I'm much more interested in what's happening with organizations like Materium. So Vinny Gupta, and he's doing an awful lot of work with the guys that used to be in Star Trek. So he's got William Shatner on board talking about memorabilia and collectibles from, you know, physical collectibles from the Star Trek days. But what they're doing is that they are attributing blockchain-based proof of ownership to physical world objects. I would be very surprised, Bernard, if by the end of this decade, we do not see physical property deeds and large numbers of business-to-business transactions being NFT-based because the technology is absolutely what those things require. So legal contracts need to be blockchain-based to remove a lot of the inefficiencies and the trust issues that plague many parts of the world. The irony is that when we talk about NFTs in the media at the moment, a lot of it is bored apes. They're interesting. I'll give them that. But they're pure speculation and they are a status symbol and nothing more. The real potential value of NFTs is so much less exciting, but so much more valuable. So when you hear stories about NFTs, when you're evaluating them as a business person, as a trends analyst, whatever it may be, look well beyond the current iterations and examples of what NFTs are being used for, because they are the most tiny example of the potential of the technology. I wonder when we go to 2030 and we start having this same conversation again, the question wouldn't be about Facebook and TikTok. I think the question will be whether the NFT is real or have real brand value. That will be, I think, the next decade question, right? Uh, yeah, but to, I can answer that. I would be horrified if it's not real value, principally because you're not going to escape blockchain technology. I think let's step back a little bit here from Bored Ape and all that kind of stuff. Blockchain is to this decade what HTTP was to the 1990s. Do you understand HTTP to this day? No. I confess I went in and I tried to make sense of it. I kind of understand the protocols behind it, but I don't need to in order to build a website. We have already got to the stage now where it's invisible. You know, you ask a kid, what does HTTP stand for? They're not going to know, but they see it every day. Although increasingly it's invisible, obviously, because your browser hides it. But that was the transfer protocol that enabled the web to work. Blockchain is going to do the same to allow us to extend beyond just displaying audiovisual content and to sort of further integrate the physical and digital worlds together such that because the digital world is such an integral part of our daily lives, we need that digital physical bridge. And that's what blockchain and similar kinds of technologies allow us to do. So yeah, I confess it's taking a little bit longer than I expected because we started talking about this in our briefings to our clients back in 2016. So that's good six years ago. And I kind of felt then that we were on the cusp of a dramatic change. So yeah, I hope by 2030, Bernard, please, I'm hoping it to be retired by then as well and be a crypto billionaire. <clears throat> Obviously not going to happen. So let's continue to talk about it each time we connect for these calls, but I'm hoping it's going to be a lot sooner than 2030. So now, if we're back to now 2022, what are the key things you're going to be looking out for the rest of the year? Right, this is a really good question. So I am going to continue to track blockchain-based, whether it's cryptocurrencies or NFTs. I'm going to be totally upfront with your audience. I'm a skeptic around these things. I think there's too much waffle and speculation going on. But like I said, the underlying technologies are there. So I'm looking for signs that it's becoming serious. That's thing number one. Thing number two, this is possibly, I mean, this actually got my attention much more than the NFT stuff, this 
Next stat. The number of people who own a smartwatch has jumped by 50% over the past two years. And we're now at the stage where 40% more people own a smartwatch than own a gaming console. Now that in my mind is like, wow, this has happened behind the scenes and this is not getting traction in the media. This is a story that has serious implications. The most important implication is the move to digital health. So no secret, if you look at the smartwatch, like the Apple Watch, a big part of it is the health stuff that it can help with. That adoption rate is really going to accelerate the potential here because now that we've got this massive base, I mean, so just based on the numbers that I'm seeing, at least 800 million people around the world, I would say, now have a smart wrist device. So either a smart watch or a smart wristband like a Fitbit. That's massive. A huge audience. So that has implications for digital health and healthcare as an industry, which is massively ripe for disruption, especially in the United States. It's just so much messing inefficiency in that industry. It's ready for a good bashing. And I think it's high time that it had one. So I'm excited about that. But I think more importantly, when you look at the way that we use a smart wrist device, whether it is allowing us to access content into our ears. So, you know, just you as a podcaster, the fact that we don't need to have a phone or a bigger device nearby, we can stream audio through your GPS connected device on your wrist and it plays to your Bluetooth earpiece. That in itself is interesting. But when you get beyond that and you start looking at how does this impact the social media platforms? So you can see something like WhatsApp pops up on your smartwatch nice and easily. You can read that message without needing to be connected to any other kind of screen. But TikTok on a small screen like that, I'm less convinced. Does it mean that we suddenly start moving back to small square videos and stuff like that? So that was a long number two in there, but I'm definitely tracking that. So blockchain, smart wrists, beyond that, I've suddenly got about 85 options to choose from for number three. So it's difficult to pull out number three, but those are the two that I'm definitely looking at with interest. If you had to squeeze me, Bernard, I would probably say the rise of consumer spend on TikTok is probably the one that I'm looking at, not just from a TikTok perspective, but the fact that over the past 12 months, 2 billion US dollars was spent on TikTok coins by end users like you and me to admittedly buy one or two social commerce things. But for the vast majority of the use cases, that money is going to be tips to creators. I don't need to tip those creators. It's like walking down the street and throwing the coins into the guitar case of a busker. It's the digital equivalent of that. And the fact that the kids around the world have spent $2 billion doing that over the past year, I'm looking at that and thinking business models, advertising based, all sorts of potential for change and disruption. And I think that's going to be a continuing story and we'll talk in 2023 on the next report. So Simon, many thanks for coming on the show. In closing, two quick questions. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Ooh, recommendations have inspired me. That is a good question, Bert. No, I can't think of anything. <laughs> you mean you haven't fair. read anything recently or watched anything interesting? Uh, so my misfortune is that I spend most of my time reading stats that go into... So I'll, I lie. I had a really interesting conversation with Tom Wainwright, who's a journalist at The Economist, and he was asking me all sorts of amazing questions about how the evolution of social media platforms is shaping trust in news. So the same question you asked. So if you're this, if you, first of all, for you, particularly Bernard, but also for anybody else that's interested in the evolution of news, like I said, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, their new digital news report, go and check it out. It's free to read, free to download. Please go and read it, but also go and read journalists like Tom Wainwright, who are picking apart the evolution of news and giving insight as a journalist as well. So yeah, I lied. There was plenty of things that inspired me. Those would be definitely, the top two. Definitely. Last question. How can my audience find you? 
So finally enough, you'll find me across the internet. I live on the interwebs. LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. You'll find me as Simon Kemp, black and white profile picture and endless posts about stats. So find me there. If you're on Twitter, you'll find me as Eskimon. Please do feel free to connect. And also the best place to find all of our stats for free. So that decade's worth of reports, you will find at datareportal.com. Not the easiest thing to say. So Bernard, if you've got show notes, if you could include a link in there. But like I said, all those reports are available to read for free. So if you're a nerd like me, please do go in, get stuck into the numbers and send me your questions through social channels afterwards. And have you created like a snapshot way of looking through those years of report and how they have evolved? We So I did do one set of posts at the end of last year when we were celebrating our 10th anniversary. But the best place, to be honest, <laughs> trying to succinctly go through the 100,000, and I'm not joking, hundreds of thousands of charts that we've published, the best place to start is not a summary post, but go into our library. So it's actually just datareportal.com slash library. You will find all of the reports categorized by country, by year, by you name it. So it's a nice and easy way to just browse what you're looking for. So I'll definitely get that into my show notes and, and definitely can find us on any podcast platform. And of course, you can tweet to me at Analyze Asia, A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And of course, Simon, you're always welcome on the show and Thank you, sir. good to talk to you again. Yes, I'm looking forward to coming back and learning out next time these have changed, Bernard.